Good morning, my fellow Sith brothers and sisters, purebloods, cultists, rebel scum on the run, but most importantly, you, my fellow Star Wars fans, to another edition of My Life on Exegol. Whether you are a first-time listener or a long-time listener, first off, thank you. And second, My Life on Exegol was created a few years ago to kind of help me circumnavigate the galaxy that we call sometimes when they misbehave, the fandom menace. Uh, I have been a Star Wars fan since Rogue One in the sequels. I do remember watching the prequels in the OG trilogy, but obviously uh, I didn't really strike gold until a little later on. I felt that a female voice like mine was needed because as a female Star Wars fan in a male-dominated fandom, I oftentimes find it difficult connecting with certain fans, especially female ones. And I wanted to be able to talk about what was important to me within Star Wars. And that is, of course, what we're watching. Usually it's talking about the series that are presently out. Like this week, we've got the finale of Ahsoka, which we've got... This episode and next one will get us completely wrapped up with that. I also wanted to kind of chronicle my journey through the comics, which I started almost five years ago. I wanted to be able to talk about what I was reading and also make it less daunting for Those of you who have been thinking about reading it or reading a book or a particular comic, but also to show that there is a way of doing it and kind of learning as I go, especially with the Old Republic, what works and what doesn't work. Um, I will admit that, and I know I've said it numerous times. I do feel that the books kind of slow me down a little bit, especially since I got into the Old Republic. I didn't start reading any of the books until I got into Old Republic because I started with the Rise of Kylo Ren comics and then I ended up finding a reading order. And I was going to do the canon route And then go back and do non-canon, a.k.a. mainly Old Republic. Those of you would definitely know by now that obviously did not happen as planned. I was going to read 
a couple of Clone Wars books after I completely cleared the comics. And that did not happen. <laughs> they made an Old Republic reference and me being Team Dark Side. We decided to look up and see who that was. Lo and behold, I ended up making a 5,000 year U-turn into Tales of the Jedi. And have subsequently been trying to work my way up juggling back and forth between comics and books to stay in timeline order. It has not only been a blessing, but it has also been a curse because there's definitely, even though the reading order that I found is pretty, has so far been pretty good to me, there have been a couple of, oh, well, I wish I read this first and then I read the book or whichever. And then there have been other instances where I'm like, oh, well, thank God I read the book because it helps make helps me understand the comic. So I've seen it both ways. But that was, for me, one of the main flagships of this podcast is talking about and normalizing wanting to read Star Wars. Because you go into a comic book place you open the drawer and you're like, Jesus Christ, I don't know where to start. Well, this podcast hopefully has helped somebody embark the journey that I did. I also, those of you will know, I have quite a few Star Wars tattoos. Just a few. Although, if my definition of just a few is 17 and holding... I swear, since I came back from Dragon Con, I have been kicking over a couple of tattoo ideas because my last tattoo I got in December. I do miss having ink therapy time, but also being a little strategic with my money because I did purchase my 2024 Dragon Con membership and I know the hotels will be opening up sometime this month or at least a chunk of them will be. So I've been kind of holding off to try and figure that whole situation out. But I have either been leaning towards my XR Con idea or I keep revisiting the War Between Worlds episode of Rebels and the painting of Mortis, which I believe I talked about this briefly in the last episode or two. I did a Rebels rewatch right before Ahsoka started and I found myself looking at the Mortis painting with the hands when Ezra goes to open it and then close the portal. I find myself visiting the the circular lines in the paintings. I think it would make a really cool tattoo. The only problem is, is aside from it looking cool, 
I don't have a burning desire to go get the tattoo, let alone figure out where the hell I'm going to put it. So that's kind of the other thing where I'm at because I do make a list of all my ideas and I do have room with my other three Rebels tats to put another one. I'm just not 100% sure if the Mortis painting is something that I want to do or as Ahsoka finishes and seeing where Ahsoka goes, seeing if there's something because it ties into Rebels, see if there is something I can tie in that's a nod to Rebels, but it was in Ahsoka, if that makes sense. Other than that, you know, it's just me. I don't get into the drama or rumors. I don't really get into a whole lot of smack talking, especially about other podcasts. We are stronger together than divided. There are plenty of other podcasts out there that use their platform for no good, and I am determined not to be one of them. So forgive my transgression. I just kind of wanted to go on. I guess it turned into some weird TED talk about my podcast and my purpose. So I apologize. Jumping right into Ahsoka. I don't really need to put in too much of a break here because I'm not talking about the most recent episode. I'm going to be talking about five and six today to get us at least caught up with me pairing them together. And then once the finale airs in the next 24 hours, I can jump on and record seven and eight and that'll finish out Ahsoka. I will be the first to admit that I've watched episode five out of all of the episodes that have aired so far as of this recording, including seven. I have watched five the most out of all the episodes because for me, five was arguably one of the best episodes. I definitely think that for me with this particular episode, there was so many nods to Rebels and there are a couple people that finally appear that we've we've only heard mentions of or seen very, very briefly that finally kind of show themselves in this episode. Apologize, that's my Keurig. Um, But yeah, without further ado, episode five, Shadow Warrior, which runs about 51 minutes. The episode really starts off in this very ominous, shall we say, ominous kind of mood because we are on Setos on the cliff side where Ahsoka fell into the water. We don't know what happened to her. Sabine was taken to go find and rescue Thrawn by the enemy. So... A lot went down last episode, 
and Hera finally shows up to try and piece everything together. Now, you kind of forget that, okay, Ahsoka may or may not be gone. Sabine is gone. Oh, yeah. What about Hu Yang? <laughs> so when we start the episode on Setos and we're at that cliffside circular memorial worship place or whatever you want to call it, we see the star map that was sabered in half by Balon. Hera's looking around for clues. She hails Carson Tega. They've apparently found nothing, and it's like, oh, well, look like we missed the fight, you know. Okay, you know, just keep looking and report if you find anything. Jason Sindula, a.k.a. Hera and Kanan's son, comes out of the ghost with Chopper in tow, of course, and asks if he can come out. And Hera looks around to make sure it's safe. And she's like, okay, you know, don't wander, stay within sight, and, you know, obviously stay with Chopper. Hera goes further into the cliffside circle place and goes, she hears something just over the ledge and has Jason stop where he's at and he goes hiding behind Chopper. My only, as much as I love Rebels, he moved around a lot. In Rebels. My only. And I wouldn't even know. I don't even know if I would classify this as a gripe. It's how Chopper moves. In live action. Versus Rebels. He is. He has been given screen time. I'm not going to deny that. He is. A little rigid. Live action. That's my only thing. He doesn't, he used his arms a lot when he communicated in Rebels, and he doesn't, we haven't really seen him use his arms a whole lot, except for, I think, when they were flying in the Ghost, or excuse me, the Phantom, when they were going after the fleet trying to steal the hyperdrive, and he's sitting outside of the Phantom, and he's sitting there, like, waving his arm. He hasn't used his arms a whole lot. That's kind of my only thing. Chopper in Rebels is very sassy, very mouthy. He moves around quite a bit. That's my only thing that it's kind of coming to the point where because I love Chopper so much, he's just a little rigid in live action for me. Like I said, again, it's not a gripe. It's just something worth pointing out. Um, But Jason hides behind Chopper. Hera goes to the cliff edge and finds Hu Yang holding on to Sabine's helmet. And he says to her, I told them to stay together, but they never listen. They never listen. Jason is now kind of looking out over the water. And he's kind of looking very intently and intensely. Like he's hearing something, but you don't know exactly what just yet. 
At the end of the last episode, we also had a bittersweet reunion between Master and Padawan, a.k.a. Ahsoka and Anakin. And that reunion definitely finally gets flushed out in what I would probably call one of the biggest fangirl, fanboy moments of the episode because you see a couple you see at least a cameo and I'm not going to get ahead on it but Anakin has been de-aged a little bit whereas Ahsoka is as she was when she fell over the cliff so she's older he's younger she asks him what happened and he tells her you lost a fight trust me you lost and at first she's trying to piece everything together and then she mentions Balon's skull's name and Anakin says to her, you do remember, that means you still have a chance to live. Not quite sure what he means by that. But when Ahsoka asks him, why are you here? And he says to her, I'm here to finish your training. One is never too old to learn snips. And Snips, of course, is his nickname for her. The lesson he plans on teaching her, once she's finally receptive, and it's like, okay, what's the lesson? The lesson is live or die. And he clearly ignites his lightsaber, which is, at the time, important worth noting. Going back to the cliffside on, <coughs> excuse me, on Setos, Jason is still looking out over the water with Chopper. And Huyang says to Hera that the map has been broken beyond repair. Carson Tega, Teva comes over to her and stresses the importance of we have to report into headquarters. And Jason yells to Hera. Mom, there's something about the water. There's something out there. I can feel it. Carson's trying to talk to her about reporting to HQ, and Jason's trying to fight for her attention. And he finally gets her to come over to the cliff edge with her and tells her to listen to the waves. And he asks her, don't you hear it? And first she asks him what, and then he says the lightsabers. And then, not only can you hear the lightsabers, but we get some kind of confirmation that Hera can hear what he hears. Now, we have always kind of, in a way, known that Jason probably be force sensitive but we never really aside from being involved with Kanan we never really got any sense that Hera kind of had any special Jedi abilities 
Um, she definitely is very much the warrior. She's proven herself in combat time and time over on top of her origins and her parents, especially her father in Ryloth. We know she's a born fighter. Just taking a sip of coffee. Bear with me here. Ah, murder juice. Anyways. But yeah, we finally got some sort of confirmation that she at least hears what Jason hears. And again, I think that's important and worth noting. She has Carson get the squadron back up over the ocean and do a full sweep. And Carson's like, you know, we already did that. And she, you know, Hu Yang has to kind of point out to Carson what happened. And he mentions to Carson that Jason has abilities and his father, Kanan Jarrus, was a Jedi. So they go back three X-Wings there with Hera out over the ocean and look. Going back to the lightsaber fight in the war between worlds, between Anakin and Ahsoka, he says to her, I haven't taught you everything, and he kind of sabers the path that they're on, and they end up falling down into what we eventually define is a memory from Clone Wars. Now she's young Ahsoka, and Anakin looks about the same as he was in the Between Worlds reunion, but she is now younger, not older. You've got clone troopers all around them running, Looks like, if I'm not mistaken, it looks like uh, looks like they are on Ryloth in the battle, because you see of what looks like in this entire sequence. There, it looks like the fighters, and I don't remember their names because I know rebels when they go to help and meet Hera's dad. And help them liberate Ryloth. There are a couple of fighters. But I cannot for the life of me remember their names. But in one of the sequences in this. Anakin is talking to. What looks like. One of those. Fighters. I'm not 100% sure on that. I believe she was blue. You may remember. Help me. I can't remember the. can't remember all the names. But trying not to get too far ahead here. Um, she says, she hollers to Anakin, why are we here? You know, this is one of our first missions. 
and she doesn't understand. And Anakin says, that's your problem. This is your training. They continue pressing through the battle, and eventually, when they go running into a bunch of smoke, they come out on the other side of it, and there's a lot of losses. Everything's kind of calmed down a little bit. You've got a bunch of clones on gurneys. And it's a different scene and tone from the chaos that we just ran from. And this impresses upon Ahsoka because she kind of stops and Anakin turns around and notices that there's something wrong. So he goes over to her. And asks her if there's a problem. Now, one of the things that I really liked in this is she goes to have a seat next to one of the clones on a stretcher. He's got his face covered. You don't know if he's alive or dead. But when she sits down next to him and holds on to his hand, his hand moves to hold hers. And it's that little moment that you can tell she's trying to comfort him. And when Anakin comes over and asks her if there's a problem, she points out the obvious saying, we lost so many. And she starts blaming herself. Anakin points out that there's that uh, there's always a price to be paid. And that this is a war. His job, or their job, is to help lead. Yes, sometimes mistakes cost lives. Ahsoka says to him that this isn't what I trained for. And Anakin kind of throws it back at her again by saying, I have to teach you to be a soldier. trying to teach her how to lead and to survive. Tells her that you have to fight. If you stop fighting, you'll die. Another interesting comment where she says, do I have to teach this to my Padawan? Anakin kind of throws back at her again, which I think it's an obvious translation between the breakdown in the relationship between her and Sabine that we've seen so far is he says to her, do you even want a Padawan? So very poignant back and forth. Going back to Setos. And Carson are out up over the ocean looking. And Huyang and Hera are having a conversation in the ghost. Uh, Huyang says something to her. Let me see. What exactly did he say? Oh, he's surprised they approved this mission. 
and Hera comes clean and admits that they didn't, but she came anyway. And, you know, chase, you know, obviously chasing ghosts, maybe this was a mistake. But Hu Yang points out to her, this is why people like you, that you do it your way. And she asks him, is there a chance that they're out there? And Hu Yang says, there's always a chance, especially with Lady Tano. And Hera asks, what was her master like? And Hu Yang simply says, intense. They receive a transmission from Chopper and Jason. Jason says that Chopper is finally picking up something. He gives her the coordinates and says that they need to fly low. <laughs> and Hera's like, how low? <laughs> and you can hear Chopper in his uh, sassy little droid mode, kind of, you know, he's sitting there mouthing off in the background. And Jason's like pretty low. <laughs> Going back to the reunion flashback scenes with Ahsoka and Anakin. The cameo that I think a lot of us were really excited to see is we saw Rex. And he hollers to her, nice work, Commander. We're in a different fights a different battle. You see a bunch of Mandalorian helmets on the ground. And Anakin kind of comes up behind her. And this is a different uh, different Ahsoka than what we saw in the Ryloth battle previously. She's kicking ass doing her thing. And Anakin's like, I don't remember this. What is this? And she tells him that it was the Siege of Mandalore that they had already parted ways by then. And Anakin kind of looks to her as a proud master would and says to her that she's a warrior now and that she's a part of a legacy. Ahsoka's afraid that her legacy is nothing but death and war, but Anakin tells her that it's more than that and that she is more. And then Ahsoka flips the script on him. She turns around. She tells him, you are more than that. You are more powerful and dangerous than anyone realized. And Anakin's eyes have changed, a.k.a. episode three Anakin eyes. And he definitely does not. It's interesting even seeing the dynamic and the behavior change with him when she brings that up, because it's very much the elephant in the room. And she's like, you know, okay. You're trying to sit there and practice and preach this to me, but let's talk about you for a second and everything that you've done. He did not like that. (laughs) So he definitely starts being combative with her and he tells her, you got to, we're going back to the beginning. You're, you, you, you don't, I gave you a choice. 
have his eyes changed, but now when he ignites his saber, his saber is now red. But the confusing thing, and I'm fairly certain, it's not, and I'm not sure if this was intentional or not, but there is a difference between his Anakin Jedi hilt and his Vader hilt. The Vader hilt has a lot more black to it. I don't recall, and I'm fairly certain on this, which I'm, again, having rewatched this episode so many times, it's definitely something that I picked up on on my second and third rewatches. I'm like, hmm, the blade color has changed, but the hilt is still his Jedi hilt. And you can see it a lot better when leave this battle scene go back to the Between Worlds segment. Because you see a little bit more close-up of their shoulders and up where they're holding the hilts in front of their face. Pretty sure it was his Jedi hilt. When they're back between worlds and he comes charging at her, you see flashes back and forth of him as Anakin and him as Vader. And it's very... In a way, it's like a weird hallway scene, but in between worlds, because it's like Anakin Vader, Anakin Vader, but it's, he is constantly charging towards her, but the flashes of him as Anakin and Vader as she's down and he's coming at her almost on top of her, it's, it's a weird angle, but it, it's definitely of an intense visual seeing that back and forth montage. He tells her that she lacks conviction, excuse me, lacks conviction and that it is time to die. However, he finally starts to fight back a little bit more and she tells him after she bests him, she takes his hilt, his lightsaber, and tosses it down into whatever it is down into some weird between world abyss. Tells him that she chooses to live. And the second that she says this to him, he changes back to Anakin. And he seems pleased to hear this because he tells her that there's hope for you yet. And he disappears on her. And then the between world markings and path, everything disappears. So it's just some weird night sky. And everything starts filling up with water. Finally, we see her back in the water. She's looking up. She's... She's in the water, but she's not too terribly deep to where she can see the light on top of the water above her. Her eyes are open. She's clearly alive and cognizant. One of the X-Wing pilots jumps in after her, pulls her out of the water and onto the ghost. Of course, by now, it's pretty much evening because the X-Wings and everybody, they had the light shown on that particular area they pulled her out of. Weather looks a little choppy. Kind of reminds me of uh, 
little bit. But anyways, let's see. Jason hollers as everybody comes back to the cliff that they found her, that they got her. She wakes up the next day. Huyang greets her and welcomes her back. When she asks how long she's been out, he says to her that she's been out for one rotation and tells her that Jason, she has Jason to think that Jason found her. And that Hera is here with the squadron of X-Wings, all unauthorized. Huyang also tells her that they have not found Sabine. However, he says to her he was hoping that she could explain what happened. And he shows her the destroyed half of one, uh, one of the destroyed halves of the star map. Ahsoka exits the ghost, and we see Jason playing around with Chopper. Again, it's a very minuscule detail, but Chopper, a little clunky moving around in live action. I get it, whatever, but it's a little wonky. Anyways, Jason sees Ahsoka coming towards him and goes to give her a big hug. And he says to her, I heard you fighting. And Ahsoka seems touched but also surprised by this. And she's like, oh, yeah? And he, he asks her, who were you fighting? And Hera quickly ends the conversation. And it's like, oh, you know, Huyang will go show you inside the starship. And he's like, oh, I've already been inside one of those. And then ahsoka so that way they can she can talk with Hera as like a jedi starship so huyang goes to show her inside her starship specifically he brings up the training room or whatever Hera asks where is sabine Ahsoka, still holding on to the half of the star map, says maybe Sabine left an impression on it. So she goes into the circle where that star map was activated and kind of audio recalls what happened in the circle with Ahsoka yelling at her to destroy it, Sabine yelling at Balon, and Balon's promise to Sabine that she will be reunited with her friend. Carson comes up and informs Hera that the fleet is on their way and says, I don't think they're coming to help. Hera goes off to deal with it and tells Ahsoka find a way, work to find a way to get Sabine back. Ahsoka still standing around in the circle and then looks up at the purgle. On to the ghost. Hera is talking to Mon Mothma, who is 
basically questioning Hera, asking her if Morgan Elsbeth's in custody, if she has evidence of Imperial remnant activity or that Thrawn is in fact returning. And when Hera says she has none of these things, she is now informed that her and Ahsoka are to return to Coruscant with the fleet and that the Senate Oversight Committee plans to hold a hearing may be potentially stripped of her rank. After this bad news, the transmission is cut off. Herod, obviously, you know, not very happy to hear the news, nor Carson. Soka comes in and says, I know how to find Sabine. Or excuse me, I know how to follow Sabine. We very quickly discover the plan. Ahsoka intends to go inside the mouth of one of the larger purgle. The New Republic fleet tries to approach Setos. Hera has Carson go off to kind of stall for time and have the fleet tell them not to approach. It'll startle the swarm. Captain Gerard, who I guess is the main in charge of the three ships that showed up. Carson tells them, you know, to identify themselves and to stand down, identify yourself. And Captain Gerard asks, where's General Sindula? Carson says that that's classified. You need to hold your lo- hold your position until he's received confirmation that she's finished her mission. Gerard says that there was no mission. That's why they're here. Again, Carson tells her it's best to keep your distance. Gerard calls for the tractor beam. And then finally, after threatening him of his rank, he comes clean and explains what's going on. The cute little moment on the ghost with Hera and Jason. Jason, it's almost like a weird deja vu feeling because he, they see Ahsoka on the outside of her ship talking to one of the larger purple. And he says to his mom, it's just like the stories you told me. And Hera agrees and tells him that they saved us. Going to Ahsoka, she makes a connection with the Purgle. And then she knocks on the window, startling Hu Yang, and tells him to get in there. Hu Yang obviously is a little apprehensive about this. And he, uh... <laughs> Do you even know if we're going to be going to the right place? <laughs> ever, well, more optimistic than Hu Yang's, like, oh, well, we'll see where it goes. Better than going nowhere. As the Purgle move towards the New Republic fleet, 
Captain Gerard finally calls for the fleet to stand down and move out, try to move out of their path. Sarah hails them, informing them of this. You need to make sure you move out of their way. We're coming through. And then Hera moves alongside the larger purgle that Hu Yang and Ahsoka are in and informs Ahsoka that it looks like they're about to jump. And Ahsoka, at the end of the episode, closing scene, apologizes to her, you know, sorry you can't come, or sorry you can't make the trip. And Hera makes a comment about Jason being a little young to travel between galaxies. And Ahsoka promises that she will find her. And the, and the very touch, touching, may the force be with you, as they go to hyperspace, you see them basically flying into this white light. I really love, really loved this episode. And I think for me, on top of allowing Jason to really shine through a little bit and really get an opportunity. I also really liked how much time the Purgle got in the episode. Hence, we see them kind of in the closing credit scenes where you see the markings, the star map markings, and the Markings that we saw from Lothal, like the Loth Wolf, the Loth Cat, the Purgle. I don't know why, too, but the markings in the end credits has also crossed my mind as a future tattoo idea. I'm just saying. But this episode definitely by far is one of my favorites. I really think for me as, because we are now over the halfway mark with this one, they really knocked it out of the park and I'm really anxious because after this particular episode, we only have three left and we've seen two of those. And I think for quite a few of us, well, I don't know about everybody, but I least speaking for myself here briefly, but we only have one episode left and there are still some unanswered questions that (laughs) wondering, okay, we've got one episode left. How many loose ends are they going to tie up before we go away? So anyways, I'm going to go ahead and take a pause in here to set us up for episode six tight guys and I'll be right back okay guys so picking back up where we left off with episode 6 titled Far Far Away which runs roughly 46 excuse me 48 minutes Coming off of 
where we were with five and Ahsoka making the decision to go after Sabine in the mouth of a purgle. Hera finds herself now in a little bit of hot water, obviously, with the New Republic fleet. And Senator Mon Mothma is trying to, shall we say, trying to deflect a little bit of heat off of her. Trying to be supportive. Let's see here. So we start the episode with... Ahsoka and Huyang talking inside the starship. And Ahsoka is making a comment to Huyang about how Sabine's choice to not destroy the star map and to go with Balon was her choice. And how she was fated to make it. And... She's now internally beating herself up over how there wasn't enough time to prepare her for this. And Huyang poignantly reminds her that perhaps it was her only choice. And Yang finally decides to tell Ahsoka one of those stories. And he uses the opening line that we are all very familiar with, which I'm sure it got a couple of us popping a little bit. In a galaxy far, far away. Sabine wakes up. Balon's come to visit her. And he makes a jab at her about wishing she had a room with a view. Sabine politely reminds Balon of their agreement. And he kind of chuckles and walks away. I think it's interesting because we're seeing a different side of Balon. It's almost a little I don't want to say it's a it's a heel turn. But the Balon that we saw before and the Balon that we're seeing now that they've gotten what they want and they're on their way to Peridia to ideally capture Thrawn or excuse me, not capture rescue Thrawn. Definitely a different attitude towards her now, which is interesting. On the bridge of the Eye of Scion, Morgan Elsbeth is joined by Shin and Balon. And Morgan can sense that the prisoner is growing impatient. And asks Balon straight up if he still means to follow through on his promise. And he says to her in reply that her focus to find Ezra blinds her. And that she can still be of use to us. 
They exit hyperspace and finally come upon Peridia, the ancient homeworld of the Dathomiri, which is also the end of the migration route for the space whales. Morgan informs everybody that they, her kind were the first to harness and ride the creatures. And Balon says to Shin that the whales came here to die. It's a graveyard. They get a beacon hailing them from the surface. Sabine can tell in her holding cell that they've come to a stop and she's taken to a shuttle and they all go to the surface. Interestingly enough, when we come to Peridia, of course, when they enter the atmosphere, it's very much like it was on Mandalore when we were in season three of Mando. However, once we get to the surface, yeah, there's parts of it that remind me a little bit of Mandalore, but I really wanted to say it kind of almost reminds me of uh, Octo, where Luke kind of hold himself up a little bit, but let me put into context what I mean by that with the terrain it's not an island like Octo is but it it, with the Night Sister statues all over the place it it also has this Game of Thrones-esque element to it but it's Very much, it has hints of Mandalore, and to me, it has hints of Octo, but it's got this Game of Thrones thing going on. So, the visual of Peridia, it's very, very interesting. This is also the first time we are seeing this planet. When they land on a platform, they come upon three night sister mothers standing around in a circle. And they come over to greet Morgan, who is obviously out in front of everybody. And they say to her, or the Head one says, you heard our call to you in the dream. And Morgan thanks them by saying that your visions guided me. Shin, of course, looks at Balon as like more witches. So, yeah, there's, you know, it's probably my one thing is we continue. We are now a couple episodes away from the finale. It's probably my one thing is Shin clearly has a thing or beef with, has had beef, what it seems like, with Morgan or trusting her this whole time. And when they land on Peridia, 
and Morgan greets the mothers, she looks at Balon's like more witch. Like you can, I wish there was a little bit of explanation for that. Just saying. Morgan asks the mothers that they came as, or excuse me, the mothers say to them that they came as Thrawn had promised. And so Morgan asks them where he is and they tell Morgan to be patient. He is coming. And they look at Sabine and say that she reeks of Jedi and she's dangerous so they take out these three circle sphere things that they were messing with when they landed. And they go in completely, how do I say it? They form a, I want to say a barrier around Sabine, but they kind of, it's, it kind of binds to her almost like, like a belt a little bit. Um, it doesn't go around her hands, but it completely, it, basically, it's a way of imprisoning her, and they say that she's going to wait in solitude. And as Sabine's being taken away by these circle sphere things, she's yelling to Balon that we had a deal, where's Ezra? Shin and Balon have a discussion about how Peridia is a land of dreams and madness. Balon reminds her that she wasn't raised at the temple. And so Shin says, sometimes stories are just stories. And Balon recalls how he watched the temple burn and he couldn't make sense of it at the time. As you get older, you look at history and it all becomes inevitable. And so Shin asks him, is it our turn now? And, and is this alliance with Thrawn going to pan out? And Balon says to her that that sort of power is fleeting. He is seeking the beginning so the cycle will end. If the old stories are true. Whatever that means. Sabine is now in captivity, but yet she can now hear a ship approaching. What we will eventually know as Thrawn's starship, before I completely butcher the name, the Chimera. It lands down on top of the fortress that they are on, which the fortress, it's kind of in the middle of almost nowhere. It's just this big, it's kind of almost formed alongside the rocky terrain, but it's standing by itself. So when the Chimera comes to land, 
it comes down on top of the platform where everybody is standing. And we are introduced to night troopers, which are essentially white imperial stormtroopers, but they are wrapped in some sort of, it's not ribbon, but red tape to kind of almost mimic the Night Sisters and how they wear red. Dathomiri wear red. And I am fairly certain that the insinuation with having them wrapped in red is to kind of give off the impression that they are really dead like Maroc was although Maroc when he disappeared when he disappeared he became like this green almost sort of smoke but I will admit visually these night troopers with the red tape It's interesting how they take something that we are familiar with and kind of spin it into something that's a little new. However, the star of the show, (laughs) I want to talk about Captain Enoch for a second. So, when Thrawn walks down in between the night troopers and we are introduced to Captain Enoch, Pardon my language, but this this really seeing him really excited me here. This motherfucker. <laughs> I love, 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 love how Captain Enoch looks diff- different. I love it. I love the gold gladiator mask. Yes, he has this almost I don't want to say he reminds me of the Kotobukiya figures because he he still got the white armor, the white gray armor, whatever. And I know like with his helmet, he's got the two Imperial logos on either side of, I guess you could say on like his forehead. But the gold mask, I thought personally was fucking amazing. I loved it. Thrawn greets the great mothers and how they, and says to Morgan as he's thanking her how they will finally be able to escape exile and says that they will finally be able to begin the cargo transfer as promised by the Great Mothers. Elsbeth says that she's seen the catacombs. It will take at least three rotations. And the Great Mothers inform him that there is a prisoner with them and how this prisoner is a loose thread. As Balon is speaking up, Thrawn naturally asks who this is. And Morgan informs him that they're mercenaries, Balon, Scroll, and Shin Hat, his apprentice, Shin Hati. 
And the prisoner that they are referring to is Sabine Wren. Obviously, that's a name that Thrawn is familiar with. Sabine meets Thrawn or is taken to meet Thrawn and asks him, where is Ezra? Again. I'm not sure because this I don't know. It, it I understand more than anybody the connection that she has with Ezra. I get it. I completely get it. However, the one thing that has me kind of questioning and not really not really understanding things is it's it's almost every other line that she's saying whether it's to Balon or to it's the first words out of her mouth where is Ezra and Balon what he says to Morgan is very true she is completely consumed herself with finding Ezra at this point it's that's all she can really focus on and so I'm not saying it makes her weak it you know it you know if you were to put put yourself in her position you know somebody is near and dear to her as Ezra you know it her being completely consumed about it, I guess, is only human nature. But I also think to an extent, like Balon says, it does make her a little weak. Because her her determination to find him, it does blind her. Just, just saying. Thrawn informs Sabine that he intends to honor Balon's promise to her. And offers the latest intel on his whereabouts. And he and so Sabine's like, wait a minute, you're just going to let me walk out the front door? And of course, Thrawn says to her, you know, you helped my cause, now I will help yours. So it's like, okay. What's he, uh, Thrawn being nice all of a sudden? Okay. Um... Thrawn points out that possibly he's dead. However, when his starship leaves, if she's not on it, she will be stranded. So basically, you've got time to go look for him, but you're on a clock. They put her on a weird werewolf-looking thing. (laughs) Captain Enoch gives her back her weapons and says to her as she leaves the fortress to die well. Okay, whatever that means. As they watch Sabine leave the fortress, Thrawn is talking to Morgan, Balon, and Shin as they watch Sabine leave. And... I think Morgan at this point is really like, dude, you just let her walk away. 
And so Thrawn informs them that she's on a fool's errand and sends Balon and Shin to follow her. And in terms of honoring Balon's initial promise, Sabine will have the opportunity to find Ezra as promised. But then if and when Balon and Shin find them, they can destroy them both. Sabine pulls out this radio locator sort of thing and she gets shot at. Her wolf bolts and she's attacked by a group of nomads wearing red uniform and helmets. The second she pulls out her lightsaber, the last one alive bolts and now her locator radio thing is now broken. Back at the fortress on Peridia, we see these coffin-like shaped cargo things being loaded onto the Chimera. The mercenaries have now departed after Sabine. And Captain Enoch asks, you know, are we going to be sending more troops to support? Or excuse me, Morgan does. Two squads will suffice, and he reminds Morgan that the primary objective is to escape. Ezra and Sabine, whether they are stranded or killed, it does not matter. And the same goes for your two mercenaries. So the gloves are off. And I think... I found it interesting when Balon and Shin are introduced to Thrawn. I'm not saying he got a warm reception, but his skepticism of Balon being a former Jedi and when he asked him why he left and that he was not the first, I definitely think Thrawn naturally... Hmm. I think he already made up his mind about Balon, to be honest. And now Balon was one that you had to, you, at least Sabine, I feel like is, is not, you know, Sabine is easier to keep an eye on. Balon's kind of the loose card. And so that comment that he makes to Morgan about, you know, whether Ezra or Sabine are stranded or killed, it doesn't matter. And the same goes for your two mercenaries. He's already shocked up that everybody's getting stranded on here. And he's like, you know what? Once the cargo transfer is done, we're leaving everybody here. Sabine manages to catch back up with the wolf ride thing that she has and then she starts to holler at it like it bolted and so he starts to follow her <laughs> Sabine agrees to give it another chance 
but said, you know, is like, hey, don't bail. And then you see it start to sniff around like it's got something. And they come upon an open area. He starts to take a few sips out of a puddle on the ground. And so Sabine starts to holler that, you know, that's, you were thirsty. And so then it starts poking around at a rock <laughs> and says, you know, it's a rock, you're embarrassing yourself. And then all of a sudden the rock starts to move and out pops this snail looking creature. Sabine calls off her ride and goes over to it and extends her hand. This rock snail thing points to the rebel symbol on her shoulder as if he's seen that before. And he shows her that he's wearing a necklace with the same symbol. And Sabine is very quickly able to realize that he's seen this before and that he knows about Ezra. Balon and Shin following behind come upon the area in which Sabine was attacked earlier by the nomads. Finds the broken radio locator, communicator thing or whatever. And Balon realizes that she survived. Shin asks him if he knows of the one that she seeks. And he has another conversation with Shin about Bakken Jedi and how Ezra is, or excuse me, Ezra's too young, he doesn't know him, and that he comes from a breed of Bakken Jedi, trained in the wild after the temple fell, which Bakken is the wooden swords that Sabine and Ahsoka were training with at towards the beginning of this of the series so the wooden swords Balon informs her that she is something more and so Shin asks him do you miss it and he says that he misses the idea of it, but not the truth. He says to her that there is no future here. Or excuse me, there was no future there being with the Jedi. And so Shin kind of flips it back on him and is like, well, do you see one here in this wasteland? Thrawn and them seemed eager to leave. Maybe we should too. And Balon says to her, maybe they flee a power greater than their own. And he says to her that something calls to him and that something stirs here. They come upon the group of bandits or the rest of the group of bandits that attacked Sabine earlier. And says that there's no need for bloodshed. The enemy of our enemy is our friend for now. 
Sabine is now following the small rock snail creature thing to a small campment where it offers her food. And then finally, she meets Jesus. I mean, Ezra. Ezra Jesus, whatever. (laughs) Kind of staring around and you hear this, I knew I could count on you. And when we see Ezra, I know he's been stranded there for like a decade, but... Oof. I, I, I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, obviously he's older than what we saw him in anime, but this is the first time we're really seeing him in live action. And he does look a little biblical. That's all I'm going to say. And so Ezra says to her, it took you long enough. And Sabine jokes back with him well you didn't tell us where you were going Ezra honestly admits to her that he didn't know but it worked and they have a very big hug he says to her that I see my friends found you and he asks her about you know she's riding a hound he has so many questions for her And so she manages to skirt having the conversation with him for right now for the sake of just being happy that they finally have found one another. So he says to her that they never stay in one place for long to help him pack. Thanks her again for coming and says, I can't wait to go home. And... At the end of the episode, back at the fortress on Peridia, the great mothers speak to Thrawn and Morgan on how the threat of fate speaks. Another comes, a Jedi riding the travelers. Thrawn is able to quickly deduce that this must be the recently deceased Ahsoka Tano. And Morgan, of course, is trying to completely deny that she is totally on the chopping block for Balon's failure. And says that it's impossible. And so Thrawn looks to her and says, it's beneath you to underestimate a Jedi. So he now regards Balon as flawed, and so they must prepare accordingly. He wants to know everything about Ahsoka, and says to her that as a star, if a star whale approaches, to destroy it with prejudice. And so he turns to the great mothers and says to them that he is in need of their dark magic, and they say, as the episode closes out to him, That the thread of destiny demands it. So, closing out with this episode, this was definitely, like I said, I I really, for me, the last one, episode five, was, I mean, that one, oh, that one's right there at the top for me. This one... 
I saw quite a bit of mixed reviews with obviously seeing Thrawn for the first time in live action. Thrawn is one of those characters that has a very devout following. He's one of those that he's one of the very few pivotal characters for the Empire that this was the first time we finally were getting to see him in live action. And so when seeing him, now, mind you, like Ezra, you know, explaining the rough appearance, Thrawn, Thrawn wasn't a skinny athletic man like he was in Rebels when we see him leaving on the purgle with Ezra. Mind you, 10 years have lapsed. However, I saw somebody that had made a comment and I feel like I want to agree with them on a level and it's absolutely no disrespect whatsoever to Lars Mickelson, who not only has voiced Thrawn this whole time, but is actually, I can appreciate them finally allowing him the opportunity to portray him in live action just because he's the voice. However, there are quite a few other voice actors in Star Wars that have voiced but have never been offered the opportunity to portray the character in live action. And I think that's where the comment, the one comment that I saw about Lars can voice him very well, but in terms of seeing Thrawn in live action finally for the first time after waiting this whole time, I don't want to say the word I'm looking for is underwhelmed. That's I really don't want to try and use that word. I liked the episode. I really liked seeing Captain Enoch's character. And then it's like, oh, hey, there's more um, these great mothers that we are meeting. Of course, I'm trying to pull up because I think eventually... We find out their names later on. Great Mothers, Soka. Here we go. There are three of them. Trying to see. I feel like they gave them names. Oh, here we go. Clothal, Actropa, and Lexis. They were practitioners of dark magic claiming to be claiming to be able to read the threads of fate and destiny. Looking on, this is coming straight off of Wikipedia because I actually did my rewatches without captions, and I do not recall them ever giving ever mentioning them by name, other than Thrawn always calling them great mothers. Same for Morgan. I never recalled ever hearing their names physically mentioned. And of course, this now comes off of having seen the finale and seeing how the series has ended. I don't, yeah, their names are never mentioned. But Wookiee P, apparently they did have names. 
and they operated from a fortress on Peridia. And so now the whole idea being kicked around is whether or not these three great mothers are greater than or equal to Mother Talzin, who is the only great mother up until these three appearing that we have seen in Star Wars up until this point. I didn't mind seeing them. I still, I think for me at this point, I'm still having a hard time somewhat digesting that Morgan Elsbeth is a night sister. I just, I don't, ugh, I don't know. There's just something about it for me that just doesn't click into place. And I don't know if it's because, you know, obviously we haven't really seen night sisters portrayed in live action. We've only seen them in animated. So when the Ahsoka series started and now we find out, oh, hey, Morgan Elsbeth is a night sister. And, you know, the way she wields magic, it's, I don't know, it comes off a little awkward to me. And I don't want to say, um, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Not redheaded stepchild, but just the, it, it comes, I don't know, it, it comes off a little awkward to me. And like I said, something about her being what Asajj Ventress was, I mean, the two are night and day. I'm not saying that there can't be different levels of night sisters. Obviously, Morgan had some training, but that's kind of the other thing about this that that's never really made sense to me because when we see her in Mando, she's just more or less an imperial officer or governor or whatever of the town where Mando eventually teams up with Ahsoka. I don't recall, and I may even have to rewatch that again. I don't recall her even saying to Ahsoka and them and Mando that she was from Dathomir. I don't even recall that. So when the series starts, it's like, oh, hey, she's a night sister from Dathomir. And I, uh, I don't buy it. I don't know. I don't buy it. Personally, I think it's what it is because she's kind of attached herself to Thrawn it's like one of those where she needs Thrawn to be relevant like by herself she's not scary to me Asajj was very much a formidable opponent she could hold her own she was very skilled in combat and wielding dark magic and you know at one point she was a jedi beforehand and and it just when i i don't know i think that's maybe why i'm having a hard time buying morgan as a night sister is because it was just kind of dropped on her lap to kind of accept it and it's like okay like did she get training after the mando like after she got her butt whooped by ahsoka like you know, or did Thrawn send her to Dathomir? Like, you know, like, it, it, okay. 
But anyways, going back to my point with Thrawn, I'm not mad that Lars got to portray him in live action. However, hearing him voice Thrawn and seeing him voice and act Thrawn, it's very different. I don't... I did see someone joke calling him a blue data. And of course that I kind of, now I can't have a hard time getting that out of my head. Um, but I don't really find live action Thrawn as scary as the animated one, I guess if that, I hope and pray what I'm trying to say makes sense to you guys. I hope it does. I think it does. I'm having a hard time translating the voice and hearing it and seeing it walk around as a singular person. That, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I can accept the fact that there are more great mothers on Peridia. It's the ancient homeworld of them. Yeah, sure, okay. I don't... There's a lot going on. And I think for me at this point, the one thing that I have to ask myself at, at this point, we've cleared six episodes. We've got two left. There's a lot going on, and we've got two episodes to try and clean some of it up. That's my only concern, is we've given a lot of these characters screen time. And I I find it interesting how, like, last episode, we went the whole episode without seeing Morgan and Balon and Shin or any mention of Thrawn. It was strictly on Hera finding Ahsoka, and I I understand they're traveling to another galaxy. I get it. And this episode, we go without seeing Hera and what's going on with her the whole time. Because obviously, you know, when we left her last episode, she was in some hot water and had some explaining to do. So... I don't know. Obviously, under the guise that there's hopes that there is a season two. And to be honest with you, I think that's something that a lot of us are still asking ourselves, even after having seen the finale. Is intending we're going to get a season two, maybe? Now part of me also wants to wonder if reading the Ahsoka book by E.K. flushes out what Ahsoka's been up to since Rebels, Mando. Like, you know, flushing out her character, what she's been up to. Because, I mean, let's be honest. And I think this was kind of a gripe that some of us had mentioned with the Book of Boba Fett series and how Boba kind of took a back seat to 
everybody else in his own series. Surprisingly enough, I haven't seen anybody make that comment about the Ahsoka series. But now that Thrawn has shown up, I'm curious if people are going to say say kind of the same thing because I can very much see, like I just said, Morgan Elsbeth's a night sister. Now we have great mothers. You've got Thrawn and his whole night troopers, Captain Enoch thing going on, unloading um, uh, Halloween store stuff into the Chimera. <laughs> Sorry. You've got Balon and Shin kind of they want to be included, but they don't want to be included. Kind of weird thing going on. And then Ahsoka and Sabine's up and down relationship. Now that Sabine has finally found Ezra. It's, yeah, it's a lot. We just opened up a big can of worms and we only got two episodes left, folks. What the hell? So, anyways, that's enough for this week. I'm going to go ahead and get us going with our final episode of Ahsoka discussion. Next episode, we'll be finishing out the series with seven and eight. Thank you again for being so patient with me. As always, like I said, my work schedule has been very... Very chaotic. My sleep schedule's getting a little better. But anyways, until next time, my friends, may the force be with you. Good morning to all of you, especially to my fellow Sith brothers and sisters, pure bloods, cultists, rebel scum on the run. But most importantly, you, my fellow Star Wars fans, to another episode of My Life on Exegol. Now, for those of you who are longtime listeners or newbies, welcome. My name is Holly, and this podcast was started a few years ago to kind of serve as my voice and journey through a galaxy far, far away. I talk about the things that I'm reading. Canon and not canon, I don't prejudice. I actually, uh, I've been stuck deep in Old Republic for the last few years. And I swear, I sometimes I feel like I'll never get out of it. But anyways, I digress. Talk about the things that I'm collecting the things that we're all watching, and, of course, any special experiences, my Star Wars tattoos, which you guys know, of course, is very near and dear to me. It's become such a big part of who I am and my identity within the fandom, and I love being able to express and share with fellow fans whether they have tattoos or not, to show them that someone who looks like me can do it or not look like me and do it. 
getting back, I did want to touch on a singular couple couple of potential purchase updates, announcements. So a few things. I did get a hold of Alpha Comics and Games, my local comic book store here in the Richmond area. Shout out to Bree and Alex. Apparently, I had pre-ordered, which I guess it's been sitting there for a little bit, uh, the Hidden Empire trade paperback. Of course, (laughs) we all know I am nowhere near that timeline right now, but apparently I pre-ordered it. So, okay. They just kept forgetting to call me. And... I did call out Tales from the Death Star by Kevin Scott, who I had it saved from earlier this year in the spring when I pre-ordered Hidden Empire and tried pre-ordering a few others. I uh, It was too early for me to pre-order Tales from the Death Star, But apparently, unbeknownst to me, they wrote it down, and a month or two later, they were able to pre-order it. So when I called the other day to be like, oh yeah, hey, I think that comes out in another week or two, I want to make sure I'm down on the list for it. Again, even though I'm nowhere near the timeline. I do like that, unlike the typical trade paperbacks, these ones are hardcover Uh, similar to his uh, Vader's Castle uh, trilogy, or his Vader's Castle, which that series is split into two hardcovers. I'm actually staring at one of them here. So the first one is Beware of Vader's Castle. It's an IDW publishing. And pretty sure this has... I think there's a second one. Does this one have all of them? I don't remember. Yeah. Collects the series Tales of Vader's Castle and Return to Vader's Castle, as well as a bonus story, Droid Hunters. So this has, um, I kind of held off on getting it because, ooh, oh, Spider Legs is in here. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, speaking of Spider Legs. I was, this past weekend, I found myself re-watching the end of Season 4, Clone Wars, where Mother Talzin sends Savage off to go find Maul on what eventually takes him to, I believe it's Lothal Minor. And he meets the annoying Jungle Book snake, which I shall affectionately forever call him. Uh, eventually Savage kills him, but the Spider Legs Mall episode is one of my absolute favorite Clone Wars episodes. And now that Ahsoka is done and we are 
in this weird, quiet holding pattern waiting for Star Wars. I pretty much rewatched everybody, but uh, I believe at some point I had started a Clone Wars rewatch, but I stalled somewhere in season one. And if I remember correctly, I believe the first few seasons really roughing it. And I was just, I almost was like, uh, I was losing interest and I was fading fast. So I think later on today, if I do not finish my Annihilation reading, which I swear to God, I've got to finish that. I had downloaded the from the public library before I went to Dragon Con and that book finally returned the other day and I was like well shit if I'm having a hard time sitting down physically reading it why don't I listen to because I'm only got I'm on page 254 and including the epilogue it ends on 334 so I've got no more than 100 pages left I should be able to easily finish it today my problem is is I I don't remember too much oh I have an idea of where I left off on anyway but and then at the end of the book it's got an excerpt from Scoundrels by Timothy Zahn uh I don't know if I'm going to read that, but I need to finish Annihilation before I get too involved. I'm clearly backed up on my reading. I'd like to start Night Errant and get that ball rolling. Speaking of Old Republic, I did reach out to my tattoo artist. I feel like I'm getting close to pulling the trigger on my XR Kun tattoo. I've been thinking about it for quite a while, and it was one of the discussion points that I brought up when I met Kevin Anderson at Dragon Con last month, and there's still, there's still a couple things about the tattoo that I feel like I'm 90% sure I know where I want it, but then there's that one or two percent of me that still takes issue with his lightsaber hilt in the panel that I picked from the Tales of the Jedi comics. His lightsaber hilt looks like he's carrying a flashlight, and it completely kills me. It's no smaller than the tip of your fingernail and it just completely kills me. The pose is right, the outfit is right, his like everything about him in the photo is completely spot on what I want and the only thing plucking at me is his fucking lightsaber hilt. It just you can't see a whole lot of detail on it. It's just, like I said, it looks like he's got a a mag light or like a flashlight, like just clipped on the front. 
And that's the only thing plucking at me. Everything else though is perfect. However, some of you may remember this if you are longtime listeners. At one point, I had a friend of mine where I used to work at that was going to try and redraw it with him holding the saber. And I feel like that would completely change the the vibe of the photo. I don't... Personally, if we were to change anything, I would take the lightsaber off draw him without it even clipped on the front because it's so small anyway you won't realize it's not in the panel because he's wearing the gauntlets and if I'm thinking about adding a Masasi warrior next to him at some point later I kind of feel like I don't want to have too much going on but at least this way what if we draw it without the lightsaber and at some point, I can put the lightsaber either on the bottom or the hilt somewhere near. Like, I can figure out something. I know I could. I'll figure it out. I swear. I'll figure it out. <laughs> and actually, that might be, now that I think about it, draw the panel. So if I decide to do the Masasi Warrior later on... We can draw the stencil with the Masasi on there so we know that there's going to be room for him when I get him. Can very easily draw XR without the saber clipped on the on the belt. And at some point, I can put the lightsaber hilt on the bottom or put it somewhere else so it gets the attention that it deserves. However... I don't want to have a bunch of lightsaber hilts on me, or I don't want to necessarily copy my Kylo tattoo, my Kylo lightsaber hilt piercing the rose. I don't want to copy that in any shape or form. But I had thought about a similar idea kicking around a while back. Revan... Because he has two hilts, I was going to do his Darth hilt, but I quickly abandoned that. I would do his mask before I do his saber, if I decided to ever get a Revan tattoo. But anyways, reached out to my artist, kicking around ideas, thinking out loud. Hopefully, by the end of the month, once I see where I'm at with everything, I'd like to try and schedule that in. Um, But I think that is almost everything. Ah, one other merchandise news. So, I had mentioned before, staring at the fig pin, Spider Legs Mall. In episode 4 of Clone Wars. So. One of my. Shot purchases. At. Dragon Con. Was. A fig pin. Of. Mecha Legs Mall. Or Mechanical Legs Mall. 
I call it cybernetic legs because it's the scary, creepy ones with the claw feet, not the normal looking ones that he gets later on. Because he technically has at least two pairs of robot legs. A lot of people tend to call it the mecha legs, the scary, creepy ones. The ones that when Savage brings him back from Lothal Minor and Mother Talzin's like, you found him and he's not quite himself, she completely recreates him she gets rid of his spider legs and gives him the mechanical legs made out of various scrap metal and and cables whatever it is laying around and they're quite intimidating and actually i remember too watching that scene when she goes to rebuild or recreate him It actually looks painful because just hearing him yell and scream, she's sitting there, you know, got this green swirling orb above his head, like messing with his memories and like tossing stuff out like trash and putting stuff back in. And she does the tap on the forehead to to awaken him. And it the, the scene is fascinating. And so... Now that Ahsoka is also done, speaking of Mother Talzin, huh? Wondering, hmm. I don't really have any connection to the Night Sisters or Mother Talzin, but. We'll have to see and think if there is a uh, Night Sister idea out there looming somewhere. As I digress, I am excited to finally finish up the Ahsoka series with you guys. This episode will officially conclude the series talking about episodes 7 and 8. Episode 7, titled Dreams and Madness, runs roughly about 45 minutes. And this one... I don't want to mess up my notes. This one starts on Coruscant at Hera's Senate Tribunal hearing about her little mission to Setos. Senator Ziono is being an a hole. <laughs> for the lack of a better term, really kind of throwing the book at Hera for her behavior, accusing her of having a personal agenda and having no proof of any illegal activity or Thrawn's return. And everything that she does is an abuse of authority and done for personal gain. He moves to have her court-martialed removed from her her rank completely. Of course, 
the trial, as it gets underway, we see Carson Tava walk in. They're kind of looking at each other. He's shaking his head. So one other comment that Senator Ziono makes, he is just, the song from Ludacris came to my mind in this scene, and there is a song by Ludacris, and I hope and pray I don't offend too many people, but it's an older song of his. I believe it's off the album Chicken and Beer. Uh, it's called Blow It Out Your Ass. <laughs> They're just, there's some characters that you just love to hate, and Senator Ziono is definitely being one of those characters. And then, all of a sudden, we hear a familiar voice being stopped at the door. None other than C-3PO, who Senator Mon Mothma allows in. And he introduces himself in front of everybody and says that he's there on behalf of, uh, Princess Leia Organa, and he wishes to present some information that'll hopefully clear up a misunderstanding. Of course, Senator Ziono is completely object objecting to all of this, but C-3PO has a data transcript with proof that Senator Organa personally sanctioned Hera's reconnaissance mission to CETOS and was unaware of Senator Ziono's objections. Ziono makes a jab at a droid jabber at C-3PO, which of course Chopper takes slight offense to. Basically, that, you know, droids have no business being here and they, his proof shouldn't even be counted. And C-3PO, after he presents the data transcript, clearly makes a point of addressing Senator Ziono directly and says that anybody wishing to further address concerns with her directly as the leader of the Defense Council, which very quickly puts Ziono in his place. Mothma is quite content with the proof, although you can tell that Ziono doesn't take defeat very well. If and when we get a season two, you know he's going to be politely undermining the court or the senate hearing is dismissed and Mothma goes over to speak to Hera and Mothma says to Hera I don't know what you're playing at did Leia you know, it is, is, did Leia really sanction this? And of course, Hera admits that she did eventually. And so again, 
Mothma tells Hera to put aside her personal feelings, is there really truth or should we be concerned about Thrawn returning? And Hera does tell her that we should expect the worst. Meanwhile, in another galaxy far, far away, haha, inside a purgle, Soka is training, and Anakin is on a hollow video playing, walking around her as she is training. It's weird at first because. I remember when I first watched this, it was hard to tell if he was appearing to her as a force ghost or if it was a hollow, just because of their whole interaction between the worlds. So for a second, I really had to wonder because the way he's moving and reacting to her and addressing her and responding to her when she says goodbye or bows to him it's almost like it's occurring in live time so I honestly didn't think it was a recording at first Anakin is telling her to practice often in that he, he knows he cannot always be there to look out for her and she needs to be able to make it alone She needs to remember her training and to trust her instincts. I know you can do this. Hu Yang comes in at the end of the recording. And Ahsoka tells him that Anakin recorded 20 or more of these. And that the one that was just playing was supposedly his last one. And that he was a good master. Hu Yang informs Ahsoka that he believes the whales are near the end of their journey because their speed is decreasing. They go into the cockpit and Ahsoka is saying to him that finding Sabine is the number one priority. Of course, not knowing where they're at or having really any data of where they're at. Says if we find the enemy, then we'll find Sabine. The whales exit hyperspace. Soka has Huyang quickly find out where they are and then detects that there is something wrong. Yang is picking up a lot of interference. Then you can see the little red burst poking through the mouth of the purgle. So Ahsoka tells them that they need to quickly get out. And they go into an Imperial minefield, which is sitting just above the atmosphere of Peridia. Or presumably Peridia. The whales start to clear out. 
behind the enemy or the ring of Scion waiting for them in front of the planet. Fighters quickly approach and start firing. Captain Enoch informs Thrawn via hollow that a D6 class Jedi shuttle is among the star wheels. Thrawn requests the information from Morgan Elsbeth on Ahsoka. Morgan presents him with information from the inquisitorial database and mentions that his master was, or excuse me, her master was Anakin Skywalker. So Thrawn quickly says to her, are you certain there's only one starship? Or excuse me, says that to Enoch. And then he has Enoch withdraw the fighters and stand by that there's no need to waste resources. And that the Jedi are very good at hiding. If she's anything like her master, she will be dangerous and unpredictable. Therefore, they need to control the variables and let her choose her path or let her think that she's choosing her own path and stay one step ahead of her. Now, I wanted to point this out because I I am unaware of this. I have the books, but I have not had a chance to read them yet. It was one of the books that I got signed at Dragon Con when I met Timothy Zahn. But I was talking with a friend of mine this past weekend about Thrawn's fascination with finding out this information that Ahsoka's master was Anakin Skywalker, a.k.a. Darth Vader. He brings it up quite a few times in this episode and also in the finale, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. And it did not understand at the time, but apparently in the Heir to the Empire... Thrawn and Anakin have some dealings with one another. I want to say it's book two, not 100% sure. But I did not know this, but he knew that Anakin was Vader. I think they also did a mission together. I, I was not aware of this connection, other than the fact I was like, Why is Thrawn so hell-bent on bringing up Ahsoka's master, Anakin Skywalker? Just, it's like, brings it up a few times in 7 and 8. And it's like, what is his fascination or his hard-on with Anakin all of a sudden? I know he has an interest in learning from people with special abilities. And also, he's got a fascination with, because he also brought it up. uh, when we met him last episode about understanding the Jedi and their special powers. If you notice how he watches the great mothers when they're doing their rituals, he kind of stands back with this curiosity and fascination a little bit as they're moving. 
and working. So I could never understand why in particular Anakin, why he kept bringing him up, but there's our connection. Anyways, going back, Ahsoka's trying, or excuse me, Hu Yang's trying to figure out how they anticipated, the enemy anticipated their arrival, and Ahsoka knows that it's Thrawn. So Hu Yang runs a scan to try and see if he can find Sabine. Down on the ground in Peridia, Ezra and Sabine are traveling in the caravan with the natives. Ezra is still trying to process all the information that Sabine told him. And the Battle of Endor and how the Emperor died, supposedly... At least that's what they're saying. So another little twist with the way Sabine says and answers that particular question of Ezra's and how the Emperor is dead. The way she half-heartedly answers that and says supposedly or at least that's what they say confirms or is almost a nod as to Palpatine coming back for the sequel trilogy and how a lot of people don't fully believe that Palpatine is really dead. Interesting little tidbit. Ezra points out more information that Sabine told him about how apparently there's now a new Republic and Zeb's training recruits and Hera's commanding them. And how he's really missed a lot. He does ask Sabine how she managed to find him. And Sabine doesn't really want to answer. Dodges the question by saying that it's complicated. Ezra does mention to her that getting home is very important. And Sabine... When asked why she became Ahsoka's apprentice, Ezra kind of makes a joke about it. He seems a little surprised at her, but it's interesting whether or not he was really kidding. But he seems a little shocked by this. And, of course, Sabine takes slight offense to it. Ezra presses her, is Ahsoka coming? Where is she? And again, Sabine dodges answering by saying that that it's also complicated. Thrawn, at the fortress there on Peridia, turns to the Great Mothers and says that he requires their assistance in finding Ahsoka in the graveyards above Peridia. They know she's there, hiding. They find her and sniff her out. On Ahsoka's starship, Huyang points out that he's managed to find no sign or trace of Sabine 
But Ahsoka mentions there's another way. And Hu Yang questions whether or not their bond is that strong. When Ahsoka taps into the Force to try and connect to Sabine there on Peridia, Sabine can sense this because they kind of pan back and forth between the two. And Sabine says, Ahsoka? And you can hear Ezra kind of talking in the background, asking Sabine if she's okay. And then we jump to Ahsoka above Peridia saying, I see her, I know where she is. And just as they find her, the enemy spots them and, and the great mothers with their little things point out that the Jedi is there. Enoch opens fire. Ezra asks Sabine, what was that? Or are you okay? He keeps asking her, what was that? Or what, you know, what just happened? Because she kind of checked out there for a second. Sabine mentions she had a feeling of familiarity. Enoch's freaking out that the enemy found him. So therefore they are now flushed out of hiding. However, they go bolting to the surface. Thrawn is pleased by this now that Ahsoka's been flushed out of hiding and orders the fighter group to engage the opponent. Fighter group meaning Balon and Shin on the ground. Waiting in front of the caravan. Now we see Shin and Balon. Ezra turns to Sabine and asks her if they're friends of hers. She quickly says no. Balon instructs Shin to contact Thrawn and to kill them and take her rightful place. In the new empire. Shin turns to him. And is a little stunned by this. And says you won't help. Balon says to her. That her ambition. Drives her in one direction. And his path. Lies in another. Shin hails Thrawn, informing them of their location. And Balon leaves her one passing lesson before she goes off with the other fighters. The fighters that attacked Sabine earlier, last episode. Impatience 
for victory will guarantee defeat. Which is true. Thrawn and Morgan up in the fortress. Thrawn has two gunships dispatched to support on the ground. And says to Morgan that if Balon proves capable, we may still win the day. Which, again, I mentioned last episode, does Thrawn already predict that Balon will bail or betray them? I kind of feel like he must know something's up. Especially knowing that he used to be a Jedi. he I think he's already naturally skeptical. Shin and the native fighters attack the convoy. Apparently the convoy, the rock snail creature things, don't have real weapons. They've got, they start throwing rocks and have like little slingshot things. And of course Sabine's like... <laughs> You didn't tell me they were defenseless. And Ezra informs her that, that they're a peaceful people. One of the creatures, odd things, gets knocked off. The creature doesn't get hurt. And of course, Ezra sees this and he says to Sabine that he can't leave him. And it has the entire convoy circle up around one pod that got taken down. Ahsoka and Hu Yang now on Peridia, flying above to fly over and see the fighting going on down on the ground and Ahsoka says to Hu Yang that she needs to get down there and Hu Yang mentions the terrain and how it will probably it might be difficult and she says we won't need to land she goes on to the ramp which then turns into a slide she slides down and falls gracefully onto the ground where Balon is waiting for her. Balon says to Ahsoka, this is a surprise. So Ahsoka asks if he's disappointed, or yeah, if he's disappointed. Balon says no, but that he can't allow Ahsoka to interfere. And Ahsoka clearly doesn't have time for this, which Balon also knows. And they have a phenomenal fight scene. This next few minutes, it's back and forth between Balon and Ahsoka fighting, and Sabine and Ezra in the caravan fighting Shin and the... Uh, Native fighter group or whatever whatever group they're called, but the ones that attacked Sabine earlier, 
when she went out to find Ezra? That same group. But so it's a lot of fighting back and the two different fights going on back and forth. Um, the Ahsoka and Balon one in particular was really good. Sabine tries to offer Ezra his lightsaber back and he refuses saying that the Force is his ally. I will admit first I thought Ezra's fight using just the Force, I thought it looked a little weak. It looked a little it looked a little wonky. It got better, but just seeing it in live action, like seeing him finally wield the Force kind of the first time we're seeing it in live action it just it needed a little work I thought it looked a little weird anyways Shin almost scalps him coming going to almost I wouldn't say yeah trying to almost behead him from behind he manages to duck just in time a couple of the hairs on the back of his head look like they catch a little fire and Sabine catches up with Ezra and they team up against Shin and says that it's not looking good for you just as the two gunships come down to land and provide Shin support. Ezra instructs Sabine to take her now and Shin pushes Ezra back. Balon, as he's fighting Ahsoka, tells her that she can't defeat him. To which she says, perhaps I don't have to. Huyang flies over them, firing down, distracting Balon, and she manages to get away on one of the wolves. Kind of smokes herself away as a distraction. It's weird because... He's not upset that she got away. He actually looks relieved here. And then he just kind of walks off. Thrawn is watching this on the battle map that they've got going on in the fortress. Now that the gunships have arrived, he notices they are now one mercenary short and asks Morgan, Where is Balon? (laughs) just as Shin instructs the fighters and the night troopers to destroy them Ezra wait we surrender let's talk don't you want to take us as prisoners Shin orders everybody to fire Ahsoka arrives and pushes Shin back and Huyang says from above, now that they're all back, uh, he's, he's relieved that they're all back together again. And he says, I hope I survive to see the outcome. Thrawn recalls the gunships and the pursuit. The defeat on the ground with Ahsoka now teamed up with Sabine and Ezra is unfortunate, but the losses are, excuse me, the defeat is unfortunate, but 
their losses are acceptable considering the absence of Lord Balon. Morgan's a little surprised by this, and she quickly points out, all I see is our enemy reuniting against us. Thrawn, always the tactician, reminds Morgan again that, yes, this was the first match against Ahsoka, but he sees it as a success because... The enemy, while distracted, allowed them time to do the cargo transfer, which is now almost complete, and soon they can leave this forsaken place. They lost the one thing they couldn't afford to lose, and that was time, which they have. And he intends to keep it that way. As the move out siren recalls the night troopers to the gunships, Shin's looking around. For the lack of a better term, aggravated. Soka offers her hand. And tells Shin to surrender her weapon and offers to help her. And instead, with her tail tucked between her legs, Shin bolts off on her little wolf thing. Sabine is the first one to speak to Ahsoka and says to her, I thought you were dead. To which Ahsoka smiles and then says, and miss this reunion? Her and Ezra have this big hug and embrace, happy to see one another. And of course, Ezra's like, wait a second, you thought she was dead? Yeah. All those unanswered questions that nobody wants to talk about right now. All, I guess, water under the bridge. Ezra introduces Ahsoka to his friends, those little rock snail creature things. And he says to them that these are all my friends and I have a feeling, I have a good feeling, or I have a feeling, I have a feeling that I'm going to finally go home. I'm going to try and see if I can look these things up. Peridia creatures. Oh. All right, the two two new species introduced into Star Wars canon. The Howlers, which, yeah, Sabine Wren's Howler Tota. And then the rock snail creature things that help keep Ezra safe this whole time are 
known as the NOTI or the NOTI, N-O-T-I, which of course have not appeared anywhere before in Star Wars, but obviously were in one of the two new species introduced in Ahsoka. Obviously, we don't know the full story, but they seem to have adopted Ezra into their community after he became stranded on Peridia. This information, courtesy of an article I just googled on Nerdist. So, voila. The rock snail creature things are noty. And the wolf things that Sabine and everyone else are riding around on are, I guess, known as howlers. And Sabine's in particular is Toti or Tota. Did I just butcher that? Go back. Yeah. Tota. <laughs> Anyways, I didn't want to keep sitting there calling either of them either wolf things or rock snail creature things. I knew they had a name because these last couple of episodes I actually watched without captions. Um, sometimes when I watch stuff with captions, unless the volume's down lower or like the dialogue's really in a lower register that I have a hard time hearing, um, I do not particularly recall certain people just like the great mothers and their names unless you're paying attention to the end credits or you're actually looking up on google obviously these people are given a name because they're given substantial screen time but alas i am going to go ahead and pause and get us set up for the finale so sit tight guys <laughs> 